0: Good evening. This is Martin Davis with F2S back with a new episode of the New Dominion podcast. Uh, we took a week away, uh, for the July 4th weekend, but we are back and Sean once again has bailed on us. Uh, Sean is out with a, a bit of a headache tonight. Uh, we wish him a speedy recovery, but fear not the ever popular, ever present, effervescent Megan Samples is back at the mic. Megan, welcome back tonight.
1: Hi, thanks for having me again. Big shoes to fill. We'll definitely miss Sean, but I'm really glad to be here and get to talk to everyone again. So. Well,
0: we uh, we may have to we may have to fire Sean uh, if uh, <laughs> uh, you 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 more than filled those shoes last time, and I'm sure you're going to do a great job tonight. And uh, we're excited to have you back and glad that you're on the mic. We're also here with Corey, our sound guy, and our, our fact checker extraordinaire, who has already threatened twice tonight to shut us down if <laughs> things go out of control. Uh, So so be on the lookout. Uh, And finally, here in studio with us tonight is a very special guest, uh, a good friend of mine uh, who I've gotten there the last couple of years, Mr. Dan Mayer at the Fredericksburg Regional Food Bank. Dan, welcome to the show.
2: I appreciate it, Marty. Great to be with you. Great to be with Megan. Good to be with Corey. It's going to be a great night, I know.
0: It absolutely is. So let's start off a little bit and just tell us a little bit uh, about what the Fredericksburg Regional Food Bank is and what your role with that organization is and how it works, and give get people a little bit of the scope of the work that you folks do.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. The scope is very important and often undersold in the community. Uh, yeah, I'm the president CEO. I'm very privileged to have that role. I've had it now since uh, January of 2021, so I came to Fredericksburg in the midst of the pandemic. I'm a Virginia native, but I have been working at a Feeding America network food bank in Texas, Beaumont, Texas. I've been there for seven and a half years. And Feeding America is the connective link between the work I did there and the work I do here. Uh, because the Fredericksburg Regional Food Bank is the Feeding America food bank for this region. And the region is defined by Feeding America in terms of carving up the nation into 200 territories – And the territories that are assigned to the Fredericksburg Regional Food Bank include the city itself, and then the counties of Caroline, King George, Spotsylvania, and Stafford, and a little sliver of orange, the Locust Grove zip code of orange. So what we're responsible for as a food bank is to solicit, gather, organize, and redistribute across the community food supplies and other resources For the benefit of those who are facing food insecurity, food insecurity is defined as someone who lacks the wherewithal to have healthy and active lifestyle through the food that they can self-supply. So our real mission is to reach out and distribute that food to anybody in the community at no cost who faces an issue of being able to be self-sufficient in their food supply.
0: And so I think one of the thing that's important to talk about here, Dan, and, and it, you've certainly helped me gain a better appreciation for this. When we talk about food and security, we're not just talking about um, uh, people who are obviously struggling with food, maybe the homeless people that you see, uh, maybe when you're in the grocery store and you're behind people who are using the WIC program or something like that. Um, I mean, we're talking about middle-class families, are we not?
2: We really are. And and I think often the picture that people can paint in their own mind is the only people hungry in my community are those who are bold enough to be out there standing with a sign that says, anything helps, or, you know, we'll work for food, those kinds of uh, things that we seem to see on the street corner from time to time. But those are the people who are bold enough and humble enough to admit they're hungry. There are many people who go around facing the lack of food in their lives as a daily consequence. And yet we would think of them as our neighbor. We would think of them as somebody who's gainfully employed. We would think of them as somebody who's got great dignity and nobility because they do. All those qualities can be present in people who are facing food insecurity. It is not something that is obvious to the naked eye. So, Where we find ourselves as a food bank serving is often about 30 or 40% of those that we're helping just are above that snap or the poverty line, and therefore they really don't have a safety net other than the resources of the food bank and the agencies we work with. So to the government's mind, they can be self-sufficient, but in reality, they can't be, and that's where the food bank and our partner agencies really step in to try to fill that void
1: yeah I think that I appreciate you really sharing that point because I think people do kind of have this image in their mind of what even poverty looks like, but certainly food insecurity and uh I think it oftentimes is like people that you just wouldn't expect um but do have that difficulty of of you know one barrier or the next of why they choose or you know feel like they are forced to choose whether or not to to utilize those resources um and I know as a as a food bank. You all work with a lot of partner agencies, different nonprofits and other you know, religious organizations. Um, could you share a little bit about what that process looks like? I think people also kind of have an idea in their mind of what the food bank is, um, but the, the program is, is very extensive and works with so many different agencies that I think people wouldn't even think of. We'd love to hear a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Megan, and a great point. I mean, I've been in the food banking world for 10 years, and I'm constantly learning because it is an evolving field, it's an evolving industry in its own right to some respect. And it has to be nimble and responsive to the circumstances, be they economic, be they during the pandemic, health conditions, you know, whatever the climate of the culture is at that time, food banks have to be able to be nimble and responsive because people's needs change. And so to the point of what leads people to come to the food bank and and want our help, I I think that right there is a starting point for people's misconceptions sometimes. Food banks, because of our scale, are really basically giant warehouses for our community that are responsible through our team of staff and volunteers of building community synergy to generate large scale donations of food products, large scale donations of money, the ability to put infrastructure into place that can distribute the food that comes to us, that can, uh, you know, work with the retail community to pick up food from them and repurpose it. All those kinds of things are missions of the food bank. So a mantra I've always had since I've been in the food bank world is this is the community's food bank. It's not our staff's. It's certainly not mine. It really requires the community to um, embrace and understand that this food bank is a community asset, a community resource. So we thrive on partnerships. And many of those you might know as Major organizations, say like Salvation Army or Catholic Charities, who are involved in the space of working with those who are facing food insecurity and other kinds of needs. But many are smaller faith-based communities or smaller organizations that are very volunteer-driven, and they become the boots on the ground that work with those who are coming, facing food insecurity and asking for help, and then they leverage the resources that we're able to gather from the whole community and in fact, sometimes through Feed in America from the whole nation to redistribute within our
0: local community. And that really is vital that we're part of a community. So let's talk about the, the scope of that community. And I want to drill down just a little bit. We were chatting before we got on the air tonight. Um, I live um, just off of Gordon road in the chancellor area district. And there's a, a community church uh, that's, well, I guess less than four miles from me, Chancellor Baptist Church, uh, which is really one of the larger, uh, places for, uh, distributing food with your food bank. And there's, a a uh, a, a man there, Tracy Bailey, who's heavily engaged in that work. And we were just talking about Tracy. He, he's a real powerhouse. Uh, he, the guy is just, Incredible! The energy he brings is amazing, and I know that I have watched that program over the years go from uh, a very small, sort of local thing where Tracy would like literally go to the food bank and kind of grab what he could grab and bring it back, to a little bit more organized where they've got computers and they're checking people in, to now they're putting out cones every Wednesday and they're directing traffic and people are flowing in, and it's a, it's a it's an impressive thing to. Watch, and it's easy though to look at that and go, "Wow, we must have a real handle on this problem." But as I recently learned at an event that was hosted at the at the food bank, uh, you know, there are complications even with that. Right there, are, there are complications with food storage. So if that church gets a delivery on Tuesday night for Wednesday or fresh foods, where do you store the stuff? Uh, for people who may live further out in more rural parts of Pennsylvania or Caroline. Um, who don't have ready access to bus lines and don't have car transportations? How do they get to the local church three miles down the street to pick this stuff up? Can you talk a little bit about the difficulties uh, that that still confront you, that you still have to kind of wrestle with and deal with?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you have landed on why food banks need to be nimble and responsive because it is a challenge constantly to overcome some of those infrastructure barriers that – the community can recognize, but often has a hard time solving. Uh, so I'll start with the transportation barriers because in many respects, it's a challenge for us as a food bank to try to get the distribution of food into the right communities. Uh, you know, we can't be all things to all people, unfortunately. And so we have to pick and choose. These are going to be the locations where we establish partner pantries or these are going to be the locations where we do mass distributions to the public because We're trying to do what we can to get into neighborhoods and into rural communities because, as you say, oftentimes those who face food insecurity lack transportation access or they lack reliable transportation. And so it's so easy to perhaps think of food as accessible at a grocery store, but what if you can't get to that grocery store? What if you can get to the grocery store but you can only bring home a bag of groceries because the bus line is your way to get home? You know, so there are many limitations that people face that often we can be blind to. And so the food bank's responsible for trying to overcome those barriers. One example of that is we have engaged a lot, especially since the pandemic, in mobile distributions of food in a scale that was unimagined prior to the pandemic, where we are actually running mobile pantries into communities. It's a truck taking food out. We establish a designated spot where we'll meet people and we offer food from that truck. Similarly, we do what's called pop-up distributions. A truck goes into a community, not in a recurring, predictable way that mobile pantries operate, but on an as-needed basis. When we become aware of a community that's really struggling, then we will have a pop-up distribution to get into that community. So those are examples of our mobility, trying to overcome transportation issues. The question you asked about Tracy and his church as an example, it's one thing to have the food. It's another thing to have the channels of distribution. We're a a large warehouse. In fact, we operate two facilities. So we have massive volumes of food, but the people we're working with to get it out are often churches that have constrained budgets, things of that nature. They can afford maybe a household refrigerator as their pantry chill. (laughs) <laughs> and so how do you store that food and get it out to people when you don't have the resources? And so Tracy's question was, can the federal government do more to help make sure that not only do they supply food to food banks, but do they supply resources that help the food banks and their partners have the distribution infrastructure that makes it possible to connect that food to people?
1: Yeah, I think a big uh, a big part of that, too, uh, That that I think maybe the general public is not aware of is just the amount of research and kind of data acquisition that uh the food bank and programs like Feeding America really engage in. Um and so the first time I met Dan was actually at a continuum of care general meeting where he was sharing some information about some data tracking, food insecurity maps and things like that. Uh, and I think, you know, anytime you're working in uh, any type of like advocacy role having access to that data is so important for terms of funding and accountability, like all the pieces that go with that. Um, so I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about kind of what that process looks like and how how that data really helps inform how, as an organization or an entity, you all create the mobile pantry programs or you know the all of those things to address those logistical needs.
2: Yeah. What you're referring to, Megan, thank you, is the uh, regional hunger map. And we developed that actually as part of the Hunger Action Coalition for Planning District 16. Based on my role at the food bank, I'm privileged to be the chair of a broader coalition of organizations, not just the food bank, but others like it that are in the hunger fighting space. And so as one of the outcomes of that coalition forming, uh, a regional hunger map was developed, which is largely driven by food bank and Feeding America data. So, as a food bank, we serve upwards of 30 to 45,000 people a year in the territory that we cover. Um, and so, that creates a lot of awareness of the neighbors that are out there and the needs they face, creates a lot of awareness of where people are coming for services. And then, Feeding America overlays in a, a more generic way, but a powerful way the national map, and takes county and census-level data and does some basic research and calculation on what does food insecurity look like in these particular zip codes and census tracts. And so they produce an annual map, which is called the Map the Meal Gap. And what that does is it speculates based on strong estimates and surveys and data about things like unemployment, poverty rate, uh, things of that nature. What does food insecurity look like in a given county and a given part of that county? And so the combination of that data allows us to really look at our region and identify, okay, where are there agencies that are already strongly serving? Where is there a deficit of access for people? Where are the highest needs So that clearly, even if there's multiple sites they could go to, maybe they need more sites. So that allows us to be strategic and make decisions about where can the services of the food bank and our partner agencies best be deployed. And, you know, data's a a friend in that.
0: So I think one of the more interesting programs that I've seen develop in the recent years, um, my wife and I are frequent visitors to farmers markets. Uh, As a matter of fact, during the summer, that's pretty much is where we do our shopping, um, and farmers markets quite honestly, like any other place you buy food, are not cheap. Um, uh, I never used to be amazed. I pick up uh you know a couple of bags of things at the sand i and i 'm in my head i 'm thinking, maybe we're ten or fifteen dollars and I walk up and it 's thirty and you 're kind of like, "Whoa, okay um, but uh but it 's tough to beat the freshness of the food and the flavors and the qualities and the people at these. Farmers markets are so helpful. So you see things that I I don't know, and I and I'll ask the farmer, uh, or the or the person who's working for the farmer, you know, what is this and how do I use it? And they'll give me recipes and they'll do all these wonderful things. But one of the things that I've seen happen in recent years is that now if you are on WIC or one of the uh, and I'm not sure what the terminology is, Dan. Food stamps is the yeah, old it, term. It, What's the proper right, it's terminology? It's called SNAP now. Okay.
2: Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, one of the acronyms. You
0: so know. if you're on a SNAP program, you can actually go to the um, – you can go there and they will, I think, double?
2: Yeah. Yeah, we, we're very blessed here in Fredericksburg region because – the Virginia Community Food Connections, which is really operating as a state entity, is based right here in our region. And one of the programs they operate is a called a Fresh Match Program. So they get state funding so that when people present their SNAP benefits card at a farmer's market, they can also get a token to demonstrate that they're using their SNAP benefits. And by giving the farmer that token – then the state funding steps in and doubles their snap benefits. so if they want to get fifteen dollars worth of produce with their snap benefit, the state matches it with another fifteen dollars so in a sense, they really go away with thirty dollars worth of produce and it is produce driven uh, because it really is about trying to generate the health of that person. That is a real element that feeding America and the network or he's engaging in and statewide, the seven food banks of Virginia are engaging in, is really an investment in recognizing that health and health support is just as vital as supplying volumes of food. You can supply a lot of food, but if you can't support the person's health, then sometimes that food works against them. So it's striking that balance of how much food and what kinds of healthy foods should be going to people who are food insecure, and that's a, a real dimension that food banks are focused on right now.
0: So, could you talk more about the health angle of this? Because I never used to be amazed. So, I coach high school football here in the area, and we're in summer ball right now. Okay, so you get out, uh, you get out to practice for the practice field at seven o'clock in the morning, and it's eighty-five degrees. And I mean, you're sweating before you even start going through drills. And I see kids dropping. Right, and the first question I've learned to ask them is, "Have you eaten today?" And the number of kids who will tell me either, no, I've not eaten. So the first thing we do is like, we get them off the field, get them hydrated, get some food in their stomach. Then we can load you up and get you back on the field. But then when I see kids who are dropping and they're like, have you eaten? Well, yeah, I've eaten. Well, what did you eat? Uh, well, I picked up a, you know, a, a chicken finger from Popeye's last night. And you're like, no, that's not eating. Um, how bad is this problem, not just among people who are hungry, but for people for whom hunger isn't a problem, how bad is this issue of knowing how to eat well? Yeah, it's a
2: massive problem. And again, we're blessed with a local resource that has national impact. The Dr. Yum Project is a nutrition education program that really does great work in this space of trying to get children especially energized around the positivity of eating right and eating produce eating healthily to make it where it's not a stigma you know where the the cheeseburger is not more attractive than the cucumber you know that sort of thing so um you know in that regard i probably can't quote you stats or numbers about the health aspect but i can assure you of this that when people are not eating healthily one of the main consequences of that is obesity and diabetes and chronic health conditions And when you track those kinds of numbers and some parts of our region have some of the higher ones in the state, that's an indicator right there that people are lacking access to adequate nutrition. So those become telltale signs to us that, okay, these are areas where we got to supply more healthy products and produce and things of that nature. Uh, Now you you mentioned the football players. I, I think, you know, sometimes people forget then because, they see somebody who's big, they presume they've eaten well, but maybe they've eaten wrongly and that's why they are big and obese or overweight. And so, you know, often people judge people and say, well, they can't be hungry. Look, they would look like they weigh 300 pounds, but if you're not eating right, then your health is is subject to all sorts of um, aspects of diabetes, obesity, what have you. So, I would I would like to uh, kind of throw something in there too. Um, you know the, the concept of like food deserts
0: and stuff like that. I think it would be really uh, informative to hear from your perspective of how we view that, how we should be viewing food deserts. Like, what is a food desert?
2: How we should be viewing that? And How does that impact our communities? Yeah, thank you. No, good good interjection. Um, yeah, food deserts have a technical definition by the USDA in terms of a, an absence of Adequate retail access. And in a city environment, that's judged to be if you don't have a grocery store accessible within one mile, you are in a food desert in an urban setting. If you go into rural settings, if you don't have access within 10 miles, then you're deemed to be in a food desert. So, you know, in that technical sense, it means that you really don't have access to the most traditional kinds of groceries at your disposal that you may have, you know, McDonald's or something like that, but you don't have really the kinds of foods that create a balanced, wholesome diet. Um, So when you look at our region, by that definition, there's probably only a few segments of the region that qualify as food deserts. Um, But I think, you know, when you look at the difficulty in transportation access for some people, there are people who can live half a mile from a grocery store, but might as well be a desert to them, you know, because they just don't have the access the way we'd expect people to have it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point to to really illuminate how all of, you know, the cogs of the wheel of poverty really work together, right? And and it it can be so challenging to have solutions that address, you know, all of those needs because there are so many barriers and those barriers are so varied. Um And I know the food bank works with a lot of you know, food-oriented agencies and partners within the community, Uh, but you all also work with agencies that are working on things like housing, for example, or, you know, all different transportation. And could you talk a little bit about what that process looks like, especially in your role in identifying those community partners um, and just kind of what that looks like?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, again, Marty, before we started the conversation, we had an uh, off-mic chat about, the social determinants of health, and the fact that very often it is much more than just simply food issues that people face and their lack of access to food or their lack of ability to self supply food is sometimes not just about monetary matters, but any other manner of social situations that they face. So we are, as a food bank and as a network with Feed in America, really trying to engage in surrounding people with a more holistic sense of what it takes to make them food secure and very often that means people are having to make judgments between can I buy food or can I get medicine can I fix my car can I buy food can I pay my rent can I buy food so to the degree we can partner and try to we try to do so partner with other organizations that are able to supply this element of help that is non-food related, then we are, in a sense, addressing the food security matter simply by connecting them to support for utilities, rent, what have you. Then food security becomes much of a lesser issue. And also, Feed in America recognizes that if you can lead people who are entitled to SNAP benefits to take advantage of those benefits... Then that tends to equate into about nine to 10 meals for every meal a food bank can supply. So you're leveraging a government program that doesn't even involve you putting out physical food. So one of our programs is SNAP enrollment to help people with that.
0: So at the meeting that you had where Representative Spangerberger was in attendance, you actually talked about this, the number of people who would qualify for SNAP. And don't, and I was shocked at the percentages. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was it like 20 to 30%? Yeah, it's it's generally, I think
2: around 25 to 35% of people who are eligible actually receive SNAP.
0: So that means up to 75% of people who could be getting this benefit aren't even aware they're, they're eligible for it. So can you define what makes someone SNAP eligible and where people can go to, um, uh, uh, to to gain access. to Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: The, um, the eligibility criteria, it is a government program that's economic based. So like any program, there's going to be a kind of grid that you line up. How many people are in your family? What is the threshold of income that if it's exceeded, keeps you from getting that benefit? So, um, you know there i can't sit here today and tell you that whole table by any means but there is a table that people can refer to uh, if they just google snap or you know search for snap uh where you'd be able to see okay my income level and my family size would i be eligible and then the actual enrollment process we are a player in that the food bank is uh we have a staff person dedicated to that as her job but Principally, it's the departments of social service in any community. They're going to be the main players to help people navigate the SNAP enrollment process and submit SNAP applications. So yes, if anybody's out there who, uh, you know, knows they have a, an economic challenge, there's pretty good likelihood you may be SNAP eligible. So, you know, just probably the best way to start, contact your Department of Social Services, contact the food bank and start the inquiry. Uh, because certainly they can do the research on whether or not you're economically eligible.
1: What do you feel like are, uh, I guess, was maybe your biggest transition coming from another location into your position here in Virginia? And do you see a lot of parallels with issues of hunger and food security across the nation? And if you don't mind sharing a little bit about what that looks like.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um and I, I would say there, the food banks themselves, in terms of their scale of output, their staff size, uh, the territory they cover in terms of mileage, square mileage, they're very similar. I was at a food bank in Beaumont, Texas. We did have more counties. We had nine counties we were responsible for. <clears throat> but the overall population base, because this is a little denser than they are, is very similar. The size of the facilities are very similar. All that is, is very equitable. But that is one of the most food insecure parts of the whole nation. Uh, in that area, we faced about one in five people being food insecure and about one in three, sometimes 40 percent of kids being food insecure. It was very sad to see those communities, very rural, other than the city of Beaumont itself, and just heartbreaking to see how poverty and unemployment just ravaged that region. So, comparatively, then, we're much better off in this region than where I came from uh, and got my start in food banking. But I would say this I think the numbers, even though we're much better off, still would surprise people. You know, there's one in 16 people, so about six and a half percent of the population for our region is food insecure. And then when you make that about kids, it's more like one in 12 kids or about Eight and a half percent of kids are food insecure. So I think we pat ourselves on the back in a region like this. We're one of the better communities in the country, you know, economically. And we are. But for that to be the story of one of the better economic communities in the country really kind of says something about the challenges we face as a nation.
0: We've talked a lot about uh, faith-based communities and the work that they do. And, and, And certainly you folks probably couldn't even go if it weren't for the work that these faith-based communities do. What about the schools themselves? There's a rising discussion, I know, in Spotsylvania especially about homelessness and poverty among students. I can tell you from having taught in Stafford County, which is a county that most people around here, if you ask them, you know, Stafford, well, that's the rich county. There's lots of wealth there. And I can tell you there's a lot of poverty in Stafford. And it was not uncommon. I remember the the second week a woman came by and she had like four bags of Snacks type stuff and just hand it. I'm like, I don't need this. What am I going to do with this? Right. And she's like, Oh no, these are for students. And I'm like, Well, then do I pass them out? What I, she said, no, she said, just put them in your drawer. She said, people will come to you. And sure enough, about a week later, as some kids got to know me, they would find a quiet moment and they'd walk up to me and they'd go, Mr. Davis, um, you got anything in the drawer there? And I'm like, Yeah. And I pull it open. I think, Well, w- what can I take? Get whatever you want. Um, and and you begin to realize that may well be the only time they eat today outside of school food. Um, talk about the role that schools play and, um, and, and some of the partnering programs that you're doing and uh, maybe where you're trying to develop some things there because it's becoming a real issue in schools.
2: Sure. Yeah, schools are vital partners and are ready-made partners in the sense that families are already going there. They trust the schools. And sometimes that's the barrier with faith-based organizations is if somebody's not a member of that congregation, they're maybe a little skeptical. If I go there for food, are they going to try to convert me? Are they going to try to tell me that I'm a horrible person? You know, so, um, that can sometimes be a barrier that schools tend to not have to face for families. So schools o- operate federal meal programs for breakfast and for lunch. And kids can be eligible for free or reduced meals based on their income level. And many families use those programs as a primary way to feed their kids at least two meals a day. So schools have a vital part, and they get those commodities apart from us. They're coming directly from the federal government. But we interject ourselves into schools in a few ways. One would be sometimes after-school snack programs because there aren't federal commodity programs for snacks. And you have kids hanging out for athletics. You have kids hanging behind for extracurricular activities. And so, you know, they're youth. They get hungry as 4 o'clock rolls around, as 4.30 rolls around. And so to have an after-school snack program can be very helpful. And we supply some of those. During the summer, summer feeding is a huge aspect because when those federal meal programs go away, families suffer during the summer from hunger more than any other time of year. People often assume it's the holidays because they think of themselves as having big celebrations and big meals at the holidays. It's great that people want to take care of families at the holidays, but families would much rather have you help them during the summer. And so our summer feeding program, for example, in in recent years has just mushroomed because of the pandemic and inflation and the impact those have had. When I got to the food bank a few years ago, they had just started building toward a record summer program of 32,000 meals fed to kids during the summer. That was in the midst of the pandemic. The year after that, last year, we served 64,000 summer meals. And this year, though, we're only about halfway through the program, it looks like we're going to easily exceed 100,000 summer meals. So the demand when families face the summer is truly exacerbated. And I just feel fortunate that the Food Bank and other partners like us are out there trying to address that as, as one of the major uh, programs during the summer.
1: Yeah, I think that's a real hole for a lot of people. Um, that, uh, you know, if you're coming from a position where you have not faced food insecurity or you've, you know, been kind of shielded from that, that a lot of people can forget, you know, when school is out, kids are not eating school lunches, school breakfasts. And, you know, the, the impacts of that food insecurity really, you know, echoes all throughout the school year, and, you know, just based on how kids are performing in school their, you know, ability to focus, things like that. And it it's, yeah, it's really illuminating to hear the numbers, especially, you know, as it continues to grow and those challenges, you know, become more and more widespread throughout the community. When I uh, was in college, my first internship actually was at the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank. Um, and I got to work on some summer feeding programs. And so I learned a great deal about that um, you know, how it was impacting people in that region, which is more rural, you know, it's similar to Fredericksburg region. Um, yeah. And it was just really illuminating, you know, and so I appreciate you sharing, you know, some of the information about that. And if, uh, if people are looking to support the food bank or support what you all are doing, how can, you know, people be a good partner to the food bank and the agencies it's working with?
2: They can get on their computer and click away at fredfood.org. That's our website. That's a great starting point. You know, you don't even have to leave your home to make an impact. Um, And the reason is because modern technology. We have so much at people's fingertips through our website. But the things I'd highlight to them are you can donate directly to the food bank financial contributions by fredfood.org. You can organize a food drive by going to fredfood.org, we have virtual food drives there where really what you're doing is making a monetary donation for specific kinds of food purchasing. And that makes us more nimble rather than you having to go and gather canned goods or organize a church food drive or something like that. Sometimes just having the synergy of, okay, how do we support the food bank? We're going to give $2,000 and let them buy $2,000 worth of food. Our purchasing power is far superior to yours based on our scale and our ability to really know what we need for our inventory is obviously much more insightful than than the general public's own knowledge of it. So uh, food drives, the traditional form though, we also can help people with through our website because we indicate there what are the typically most needed foods to kind of guide them to the food drive. So if they do want that old-fashioned experience, I suppose, of tangibly handling the boxes and the cans and making that donation directly. We still love that. And they can do that by going to fredfood.org. But most critically, it's our volunteer base. Right there on our website, you can find all the volunteer opportunities that are offered by the food bank. You can find when those shifts are. You can see how many people are needed for that shift. So you can determine, well, I see that one needs 10 and they've only got two, I'll i I'll help there. Or that one has eight and they've got all eight filled. So I don't need to go on a waiting list. I'll just go and find another opportunity. There's ways to really navigate then to opportunities that serve you, both where they're located, because some of our opportunities are out in the community. You know, when we have a food distribution, we need bodies out in the community. So if we're coming to Caroline County for a food distribution and you don't want to drive to Fredericksburg, there might be an opportunity right near you. So yeah, fredfood.org is the best way to be informed about how to support food drives, how to support our volunteer program. And it's the easiest way to support
0: us financially. So uh, the last question I would have for you, Dan is, uh, People really are feeling overwhelmed by requests for money. Um, when you go to the grocery store and you get to the checkout line, will you round up to do X? Um, even in your, you know, if you still receive paper bills, right? You know, check this box to do that. Um, waitresses and waiters more and more dependent upon tipping. And that's becoming more prominent. Um, you know, places where typically you would tipping was thought of as, You know, I do this when I go to a nice formal sit-down restaurant, and now it's McDonald's. How much are you going to round up to do this? Uh, So we're being hit from lots of sides with this issue. Um, um, Fred food clearly is the most direct way to do that. What other things can people do, uh, and what things maybe should they not be doing?
2: That's a great question. I'll kind of start with the not be doing. I think – don't go to your pantry and pull out five cans and say, I'm going to solve hunger through those five cans. You know, I think community synergy is more important that if you leverage your five cans with your neighbor's five cans and that neighbor's five cans and your church community's five <laughs> cans from every member, that's where you can really start to multiply your impact and make a difference. So I think um, don't think... So locally that you only do think about the person I saw at the street corner as the face of hunger. Think more globally that in a broader community that a food bank serves, there's tens of thousands of hungry people who are going to need to get these resources. And then I think another way to help that I haven't highlighted is advocacy. Doing what you can based on your passion to encourage other people to participate in surrounding those who are facing food insecurity. We have, you know, over a thousand volunteers a year. But boy, we sure could use two or three thousand a year. We have millions of pounds of food that flow through and millions of dollars to help us operate, but we sure could use more millions of both. And so I think, you know, just really thinking about how can we ask others to get involved, how can we encourage our legislators to take positive action to address hunger issues, that's very critical. And this year is an important year for that. Every five years, Congress reviews the Farm Bill, it's called, which really is kind of like the funding for all the federal food programs. And so to reach out to your legislators and say, hey, I'd like you to support some strong funding for the farm bill. It could be that simple. And they legislators get it. No one's against feeding the hungry. It's just they parse it very differently sometimes about what programs are best to accomplish that goal. But yeah, it's it's the one issue that I think unites our nation in Congress. You know, there's going to be positivity about hunger issues and addressing them. It's just a matter of how. And hearing from you how to do it can help them.
0: And we're very fortunate in this region, Representative Spanberger sits on that committee. Uh, It's a very powerful player in that committee and is uh, a good person to reach out to if you want to uh, work on that advocacy angle.
2: Yes, she's the lone Virginian in the whole of Congress with a seat on an agricultural committee. So very, very powerful aspect for us.
0: So, Dan, this has a, a, been a great discussion, a lot of very heavy issues, uh, very humbling sorts of issues, and uh, I, we appreciate you taking the time to focus us today. I do want to break us out a little bit uh, and kind of lift the spirits up a little bit here. We always like to have a little bit of fun. Um, I, I will tell you that I'm, I uh, remain disappointed and frustrated that we are, I don't know how many episodes into our thing that we are. We're still waiting for Cuban cigars. Dan does not have a shirt pocket on his little button-down Nizod, so I assume there are no cigars in our immediate future. Though I will tell folks that we have some guests coming up who I believe may be able to help us out. Um, and so uh, stay tuned for those. Uh, among our future your guests. I do want to mention, by the way, next week we're going to have uh, Marcy Catlett, Superintendent of Fredericksburg City Schools. Joel Griffith is going to be coming up at the end of the month, candidate for Senate. Uh, we also are uh, talking with Tara Durant right now about getting her on the show as well. So we've got some good folks coming on. It's going to be makes for interesting listening and discussion. But we hit all of our uh, guests, Dan, with a really hard question at the end of every episode. I hope you're ready. Strap on your seatbelt. Here it is. What are you reading?
2: That's a great question. Usually it's
0: ESPN. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Megan hit on it earlier uh, when we were talking that sometimes you just come to the end of the day and you need to go brain dead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So usually that's what I'm doing is just searching through the sports scores or a sports story or something like that. I, I was a sports journalist for a while myself. So, you know, it kind of comes easily to me to, to have an interest in it. So, yeah. Um, but in, in terms of, you know, more consequential matters, um, you know, I, I guess um, one thing I read recently was I'm trying to think what the title it's a, it's a, a book about the kinds of questions that should be asked. You being a journalist, you might know it. Um, I think it's, and then what, something like that's the title of it. Uh, just, it's not
0: going to work turning the tables on me, Dan. Yeah, I'm sorry, no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I,
2: it, but yeah, it's, it t- takes into account the five major questions that everybody should ask in life. Hmm. Um, and, and, uh, it's just well done. It's, it's clever. It's humorous. And, um, You know, it really kind of puts in perspective that if you simplify your life down to just a few serious pursuits, you're really going to thrive in life.
0: Corey, are you still stuck in manuals? Please tell us you're reading something more interesting these days.
2: (laughs) Uh, Right now, I'm not really reading much. Of anything, I'm running a few different projects, so I'm just kind of in the thick of the creative
0: process, to be honest. We'll give you a pass, <laughs> Megan. <laughs> uh, you're the more thoughtful of the duo. Yeah, give us, uh, yeah. give us a good answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually
1: am also kind of taking a break from reading something heavy. I'm. I also enjoy like crime novels, so I'm reading an old Kathy Reichs like crime novel and she's, you know, the, the whole premise of the TV show Bones actually is based on Kathy Rice's writing. So it's about forensic anthropology and crime and murder, you know, mm-hmm. just light, just keeping it light, <laughs> but just kind of taking a break from life. It's summer. <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: So I get to be the egghead. I was gonna- I was clearing out, uh, you know, our, our last child just flew the coop. So we are empty nesters now, and we've done a lot of home re- home renovations. We just bought some new furniture, which we have never bought new furniture in 38 years. I and mean, we just celebrated our 38th wedding anniversary on May 24th. Oh,
1: congratulations.
0: Uh, uh, our, excuse me, May 29th. May, will there be our 39th <laughs> anniversary? Uh, um, June 29th. My, I am, I... I am tired, folks. <laughs> June 29th was our 38th anniversary. Sorry, sweetheart. Um, and um, and so we you know we bought new furniture for the first time. But the biggest thing for me is I have thousands of books in my home, and so I have been sorting and pulling them out, and I'm taking to the beach with me on Saturday. Uh, Willa Cather's Death Comes to the Archbishop, mm. which is a favorite book of mine from back in the day, and the everything that I am reading that I'm very proud to say is that. I have the special teams playbook from uh, the University of Virginia from about eight years ago, and I am digging through that because in just about six weeks... I'm going to be on the sideline at Brook Point High School, oh, screaming, yelling, <laughs> jumping up and down, and generally making an absolute fool out of myself on Friday nights. Uh, so, if you want to see the non egghead me, come watch me blow up at Brook Point. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Dan, thank you so much for a great night tonight. Megan, thank you. You did, as ever, a terrific job filling in for Sean. Thank you. Uh, and Corey, the man, the myth, the legend. What can we say? We we couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to Thanks be here. Thanks to all of our listeners for being here. We look forward to seeing you next week. When we'll have Marcy Catlett in-house on the mic uh, talking about public education in the city of Fredericksburg. Until then, have a great week.